Well, this time I invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Verses, today we're in verses 31 through 45. We're coming back to the same passage we were in last week. Uh, we've been thinking about this, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that uh, he demanded that somebody tell him his dream and the interpretation. Of course, none of his wise men were able to do such a thing because that's not the sort of thing that a human being can do. Only God has that power. But God gives the... the um, he reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And what we read today is Daniel relating that dream to Nebuchadnezzar and then giving the interpretation of it. So we talked about this last week. We gave kind of the overview of it. Today we return, and I expect us to spend at least one, if not two, more weeks thinking about this dream. So for now, let's read God's Word, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them way, away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. Let's pray. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, interpreting biblical prophecy 
is a notoriously challenging endeavor. Many have made fools of themselves by their interpretations, especially those who predict some kind of fulfillment during their own lifetime. It's always a dangerous thing to do. And then live to see that interpretation or prediction was wrong. You would think that the least they could do is predict something that would happen just past their own lifetime so they don't have to live down the embarrassment if they are proven to be wrong. But alas, such things never end. Now, you might be curious to know that predictions about the, for instance, the return of Christ coming during someone's own time has actually been a very common occurrence throughout history. It's not just a modern phenomenon throughout the entirety of the history of the church. You can look back and in virtually every generation, there have been those who looked about them and said, well, our times clearly fit the description of the book of Revelation, so Christ must be coming back soon. And yet here we are, 2,000 years into the history of the church, with every such suggestion having been proven wrong so far. Just to give us a little bit of pause about making such statements. Well, this is not a sermon about the return of Christ, at least not directly. It's not a sermon either about the interpretation of Revelation, but I say all of this to illustrate the challenge of interpreting biblical prophecy. Which makes Daniel chapter 2 particularly helpful because in Daniel 2 we not only have the biblical prophecy, but also the interpretation of it. This is, uh, this is not entirely unique, but there are many prophecies where we are not given the interpretation of them in Scripture, but this one we are. We have this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and, and we have the divinely given interpretation of the dream. This is really helpful because it means not only do we have the interpretation to this dream, but we also have a biblical example of what the interpretation of biblical prophecy looks like. From this, we can lean into one of those great hermeneutical principles of the Bible. There's a fancy word for you, right? Hermeneutical. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. So it's the, the rules that we come up with that help us understand this is the way to interpret Scripture. And in this case, the great hermeneutical or interpretive principle is this. We are supposed to interpret the Bible the way that the Bible interprets the Bible. Right? That sounds really simple, right? We interpret the Bible the way the Bible interprets the Bible. But what it means is we say, rather than trying to come up with our own ways of interpreting a passage, we say, well... In other places, how does the Bible approach a passage like this? And when the Bible approaches a passage in a particular way, we say, okay, that's how we are supposed to approach passages like this as well. Whenever we want to understand what any passage means, we look first to see if there are other places in the Bible that teach us what it means or what our approach to interpreting it should be. So, for instance... In our reading this morning, we read from Luke chapter 24 about Jesus. And he was walking on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. 
And along the way, he begins to, basically, to preach to them. He talks about himself. And in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, that's, a, that's an important verse because it's teaching us a hermeneutical principle. It's teaching us that when we read the Old Testament, we are supposed to read it the way that Jesus read it, which means that it's all about Jesus. Jesus explained all of the Old Testament and how it was about him. So it gives us this principle, a methodology for interpreting and understanding the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 is functioning in a similar way. It says, when we come to biblical prophecy... Our interpretation of it needs to look kind of like the interpretation given in Daniel chapter 2. Now, not that it gives an exact formula or a precise method so that we can perfectly know and understand every prophecy in the Bible, but it does establish a certain general approach and outcome so that when we interpret other prophecies that should have a similar sort of approach and outcome as this prophecy has. I hope, you, I'm, I hope I'm being clear so far and you're, you're tracking with me. Uh, we, we are going to engage in some, some more um, mentally challenging things today. Um, and so I want to encourage you from the outset to sort of put on your thinking cap and prepare to, to dig into some of these theological matters we want to wrestle with. So we're doing two things today with this dream, Lord willing. The first is we're going to continue what we started last time. We're, we're interpreting this, we're uh, taking the interpretation that Daniel himself gives to us. We're understanding this dream and this prophecy. Today we're going to especially focus on the way it teaches us about Christ and his kingdom. And then secondly, just very quickly at the end, we want to draw out some of these hermeneutical principles so that we can say, all right, having looked at what an interpretation of biblical prophecy will look like, what are some of the principles we can draw out from that that we would use in other places when we want to interpret other biblical prophecies? All right, so first, let's, let's come back to this dream and continue to uh, to understand what it is saying. And we're going to do this by looking at two levels of interpretation. I, I think that we, we, need, we are intended to see the, prophes- the dream and the prophecy in it as, as being fulfilled in two different but related ways. Okay? And we need to look at each of those. On the one hand... The dream tells us about the kingdom of Babylon and, the th- and three kingdoms that will follow it. But on the other hand, it is representative of the history of all of mankind and all of the kingdoms of mankind. So let's, let's review first this 
this first level of interpretation where it points to the kingdom of Babylon and, and three kingdoms that follow it. And this is probably the, the fairly obvious part, especially because verse 38 explicitly says that the golden head of this image, remember, so this image or statue, it's got these parts, the golden head, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet that are iron and clay. And in verse 38, it says the golden head is Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom, Babylon. And so it must have that meaning, right? It says it so explicitly. The golden head is the kingdom of Babylon. And we talked last time about how these other three kingdoms, they map pretty well onto the major historical kingdoms that followed Babylon. So that second kingdom, the chest and arms of silver, is what we call the Medo-Persian Empire. You hear like the, the Medes and the Persians, right? Um, That's the Medo-Persian Empire. The third kingdom, the belly and thighs of bronze, would be the Greek Empire, especially under Alexander the Great. In verse 39, it says that this kingdom ruled over all the earth, and that's very fitting for how uh, Alexander had conquered the known world uh, of that area at that time. And then the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron and the feet, which are a mixture of iron and clay, would seem to be the Roman Empire, the empire that was in place when Christ was born. The empire that was like iron in that it crushed and destroyed the other kingdoms. In addition, we're told this kingdom is formed by the mixing of various nations together. They allowed some of the local areas to maintain some level of self-governance. And that fits verse 43. It says, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Although I suggested to you last week, The translation of um, marriage is probably not the correct one, and your Bible might even have a note about that. Rather, it's referring to the mixing of the nations. So that's, that's the first level of interpretation of this dream, that it's about Babylon and these three other kingdoms. But let's now try to get into some new material today, although I, I hinted at this last week. This dream and its interpretation speaks more broadly of the entire history of humanity and all human kingdoms. And I think, you know, where in the world do I get that from? Isn't it so obvious? Here we have these four parts of the statue, each one representing different kingdoms. So why would I say it speaks about the entirety of human history? There are several pieces that contribute to this. Let's, let's walk through them. First, as we pointed out, I'll start with some that we said last time, and then we'll get into some new ones. We said last time that although there are these four kingdoms, they're portrayed as a united whole. Right? They're, they are all part of one single image or statue. And so they are meant to be understood as being part of one single thing. Okay. Second... We also pointed out last time that the stone, which we said is Jesus, Jesus tells us that himself in the Gospel of Luke, that this stone is said to arise during the days of the kings, and that's verse 44. And as I told you, when it refers to the days of the kings, it's very clearly in the Aramaic referring to the kings of all four of the kingdoms, not just to the kings of the last kingdom. So the coming of this stone of Jesus is spoken of as taking place throughout this whole history. 
And that can only make sense if we understand that something bigger than the history of these four kingdoms is being spoken of here. Third, also we talked about this last time, when the stone comes and hits the image, we find that the entire image, the entire statue is destroyed as one. Verses 34 and 35 is when we get the description of that happening in the dream. Um, A stone was cut by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And then it comes back in verses 44 and 45 to say similar things. In verse 45, it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So the destruction is portrayed as all happening at the same time to the same thing. Now that's odd, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gives speaks of a progression from one kingdom to the next. It's talking about a progress in time. And yet, so so that each kingdom is falling in succession... And yet, it speaks of them all falling and being destroyed at once. And so, even in this dream and interpretation, it is itself speaking on these two different levels. Four kingdoms who each progressively fall, and all of them falling at once. You see, the dream is pointing towards a multi-leveled interpretation. All right, so those are some of the ones we talked about last time. Let's add a little bit more. And I want to read again verses 36 to 38. It says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay, so here, what we have is Nebuchadnezzar is a king who has been given dominion over the children of men, over the beasts of the field, and over the birds of the heaven, God having made him to rule over them all. Now, does that language sound familiar at all? Is there another place in the Bible where we hear of someone being given dominion over the beasts of the field and over the birds of the air and over all that is in creation? Isn't that the very language of Genesis 1 and 2? God makes Adam. He establishes him as a lesser king over creation. He gives to him dominion. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, male and woman, male and female. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, when we read Daniel 2, verses 36 to 38, we are meant to hear echoes of Genesis chapter 1, and the description of the authority that has been given to King Nebuchadnezzar. James Allen Montgomery writes, Nebuchadnezzar, as the type and crown of man, 
has been invested by God with man's charter of dominion over all living creatures, as found in Genesis 1.28 and in Psalm 8. That is, what he's saying is that Nebuchadnezzar is the type or crown of man. He's saying, here, Nebuchadnezzar is being portrayed as representative of mankind who was invested, who was given by God this um, mandate of dominion over the creatures. And uh, James Allen Montgomery here refers to Genesis 128, which, which we just read, but also to Psalm 8. Listen to how Psalm 8 recounts God's creation of man. Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, there's that language again. This is standard language for speaking about the way that God created mankind and placed him to be in dominion over all of creation. And when we hear Nebuchadnezzar described in this way, that's what we're supposed to connect it to. It's connecting us back to the beginning of the history of mankind. And so what's happening is that Babylon and these three other kingdoms are being used as representative of all of human history. So yes, it does speak of them. But it speaks of them so that in through them it might speak of all kingdoms. Now, just in case you think I'm a little crazy, let me quote some other commentators to show that I'm not just inventing this myself. John Calvin writes, under one image The whole state of the world is here depicted for us. E.J. Young, uh, I won't quote him here. He's a a well-known 20th century uh, Reformed scholar, Old Testament scholar. He makes the same point. Sinclair Ferguson says, The establishing of this kingdom, therefore, in some way, runs parallel to the rise and fall of the kingdoms of the world. The fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, the stone that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth, must appear in stages and develop through history. It must have been present when Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome all fell. It must be present now. It must be present in the future. So St. Clair Ferguson speaks of this as describing the whole history. Ian Duguid says, in fact... By linking these different kingdoms together as parts of a single statue in the form of a man, the dream says something profound about the whole human enterprise viewed as a unity from beginning to an end. Again, let me just pause there in the middle of this quotation. Think about the fact that it was a man that's represented in this image. right? Why? Because this image is representing mankind, humanity. So Ian Dugut says, I'll start again. In fact, by linking these different kingdoms together as parts of a single statue in the form of a man, the dream says something profound about the whole human enterprise viewed as a unity from beginning to end. In a real sense, this is not simply a vision of the decline and fall of the Babylonian Empire and its immediate successors, but an epitaph for human history. The entire human endeavor 
though gifted and blessed by God in the beginning with unparalleled glory and dominion, ends up in nothing but division and dissolution. This pattern is evident already in the early chapters of Genesis. The glory of Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 gives way to the judgment of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and the chaos of life after Babel in Genesis 11. Now, I included that whole quotation because I like where he goes in the second half of it as well. You notice what he's saying. He's saying that this sequence in the dream, in these four kingdoms, <coughs> excuse me, is essentially the same sequence that has taken place several, uh, over and over in human history. It began in the Garden of Eden, man blessed with with honor and with dominion, and then falling into sin. It happens again after the flood. God reestablishes mankind, and once again it falls away and reaches the point at the Tower of Babel, and it goes on from there. Human history continues to tell the same story. God blesses mankind with wonderful gifts, with real authority over creation, But man continually perverts the gifts that he has been given. He misuses them, and things end up crumbling beneath him as he receives judgment from God through Jesus Christ. Now, we're beginning to see how this is giving us an interpretation of history itself. How it describes for us, this is is how we are meant to think about all of life. Well, there's another piece that I want to draw your attention attention to still. Because not only are there echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 here, but also of Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 and 2. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, we read about how the stone has struck the image and it's destroyed. And listen to the description. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Well, I wonder if you remember how Psalm 1 contrasts the godly man and the ungodly man, the wicked man. We're told that in all that the godly man does, he prospers. Then in verse 4 it says, The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Let's try to start putting some of these pieces together. The dream in Daniel 2 makes a contrast between the kingdoms of the world, which will be destroyed in judgment... And that's contrasted with the stone, which is Jesus, who has all power and who endures forever. See, now we can see that the dream is bringing up this language of Psalm 1 to tell us that these kingdoms, as they are destroyed, are are wicked. Because it's the wicked who are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, again, I know I'm really pushing today on your, your theological muscles. I'm asking that you think carefully and deeply with me about the connections in Scripture and the way they inform one another. I have to ask you, hold on. We have to go a step further. 
When Psalm 1 talks about the godly man who obeys God's law, delighting in it, meditating on it day and night, who's like a tree that flourishes and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. Who is that godly man? Raise your hand if you think it's you, right? If you feel like you fit that description. Who here meditates on God's law day and night and delights in it all the time? Please don't raise your hand. (laughs) There is only one person in all of history who has ever fit that description. The Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 1 in its ultimate fulfill in its ultimate expression is really a contrast between Jesus and everyone else all right a little ready a little further okay. psalm 1 and psalm 2 are supposed to be connected to each other they form two parts of a single message Psalm 1 begins with a word of blessing for the man who does not walk with the wicked but with the Lord. And Psalm 2 ends in verse 12 with a similar word of blessing on all those who take refuge in the Lord. And those function as brackets, this word of blessing at the beginning and at the end. There's actually, there's even evidence that in the early church they actually referred to these two psalms together as a single psalm, the first psalm. Both of these psalms speak of the goodness of belonging to the Lord, and both of them contrast the righteous and the wicked. I want to read to you now the entirety of Psalm 2. You're welcome to turn there and follow along with me if you like. Listen to Psalm 2. And I hope you'll have in mind Daniel chapter 2 as we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we have here these themes of the kings of the earth. We have them in contrast to the son, the anointed king of God. 
But we even have this phrase in verse 9 about how you will dash them in pieces. Boy, that's awfully similar to the way that Daniel chapter 2 speaks. Right? In verse 44, Daniel 2, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Can't you see how Psalm 2, it's almost like it's the application of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, isn't it? It's a word of, of warning to the kingdoms and to the rulers of the earth that what they must do is bow before the Messiah, the begotten Son, lest he destroy them. See, what this is doing for us is it's reinforcing our interpretation of the dream at the second level. It applies to all people, to all kingdoms, throughout all of earthly history. And the way that it picks up on this language from Psalm 1 and 2 helps us to make this connection. Now, we're not just doing this for the sake of doing a theological exercise. So we need to pause here for this very application. And we've made it before in in our study of Daniel, but we don't want to pass up the chance to say it again. As Psalm 1 and 2 warn us, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who belong to the Lord Jesus, and then there is the wicked. And the wicked, the ungodly, they will face the wrath and the judgment of God. They will be destroyed, broken into pieces, and blown away like chaff in the wind. And it doesn't matter how strong they may seem to be. Even the strength of kingdoms like Babylon or the Roman Empire could not prevent this. But the godly will have refuge. They will have peace, protection. They will have joy and the blessedness of being with God. And the key to the whole thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the stone. He is the, the cornerstone of the church. He is the anointed king. He is the son of God. He is the one who comes to give his own life so that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Kiss the son. Bow before him in humble faith and rejoice with trembling before him and he will give to you refuge. But if you do not humble yourself before the Son in faith, you will be damned. Kiss the Son. Go to Jesus today, confessing your sins and asking for salvation.
Well, I know we could, we could end the sermon right there. But there, there is this other piece that I'd like to do, and I don't know how to do it without repeating everything that we've done today. We've, we've tried to make this an exercise in seeing how the Bible gives to us a method of interpreting prophecy. Rather than trying to come up with our own methods of interpretation, we want to see how does the Bible direct us to go about interpreting passages like this. And since we are given both an interpretation as well as the prophecy, this is so helpful that we can say, all right, it's giving us a methodology. Let's try to learn from it so that we can take that to other passages in the future. So in light of all that we said, I do want to lay out very quickly just a few points, a few principles for interpreting prophecy. I have four of these for you. First, biblical prophecy can have more than one referent or more than one fulfillment. Which means it can point to more than one thing at the same time. Right? Here we have that this dream is fulfilled in the four kingdoms, Babylon and the three that follow it. But it is also fulfilled in this larger way in all the kingdoms of the earth. Let me give you another example of this. This um, it's a different kind of prophecy a little bit, but it's still biblical prophecy. Do you remember how God promised Abraham that he would be given a seed or a son? When was that prophecy fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled in the birth of his son Isaac, right? And yet, Galatians 3.16 tells us directly that the promise referred to Jesus Christ. And the point is, we don't have to choose one or the other. It's not, it must be this or it must be that. It's both. This is actually a very common feature in prophecy. Some of us have been reading through the book of Luke together recently. Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse, and it gets very confusing at times. But part of the explanation for why it's confusing and how to understand it is, is this very principle of prophecy. Jesus is speaking about judgment that will come upon the nation of Israel in a few in a, a couple of decades and at the same time he's also speaking about the great future judgment when Christ returns. Both of those things are present in the same prophecy. And so when we look at biblical prophecy we it doesn't always happen this way, but it frequently is the case that it can refer to more than one thing in the future. Second principle is that apocalyptic prophecy is primarily aimed at, at big picture truths. So there I've used the word apocalyptic prophecy uh, the prophecy about Abraham having the seed isn't quite apocalyptic, but Daniel 2 is. Apocalyptic is when we get this strange imagery and symbolism. Right? Uh, 
we get some of this in the book of Daniel, in the book of Ezekiel, as a lot of it in the book of Revelation. We find it in other places. We call this apocalyptic prophecy, apocalyptic literature. And in these passages, there are, in fact, times when they have a real reference to specific historical events. But most often, or more often, the primary thing it's meant to teach us is about these larger level truths that apply across time to all people. When we go into these apocalyptic kinds of passages, that's what we need to be thinking about. Okay, what is that big level idea that's being communicated here? Yes, there's lots of little details and it's worth asking what they refer to, but ultimately there's a bigger picture that it's contributing to and that's the primary thing that we are meant to understand from that kind of prophecy. Because... uh, In some ways, for us, it's kind of inconsequential to talk about Babylon and these four kingdoms. We can look at them and we can say, look at the power and the wisdom of God, and that's a great thing for us to observe. But how much more when we can see this as a description of all of human history and the way that mankind fails in his fulfilling the dominion that has been given, the mandate that's been given to him, but how Jesus Christ is the one who establishes the eternal kingdom. And so that's what we want to look for as the primary interpretation. Third principle. Apocalyptic prophecy cannot be interpreted Literally cannot be interpreted literally. Now, of course, we all know, even the most literal interpreters know, this is not referring to an actual statue. Right? Everybody knows there's some measure of imagery and symbolism here, but it, but it, it needs to go even beyond that. And you, you probably know there are many who want to take as literal as possible interpretations of these kinds of passages. But you know what? If we took that approach here, and we didn't have the interpretation that Daniel gives, and we just had the dream, we would have to come away concluding that it speaks of of five, or, or rather six, kingdoms. The head of gold, the chest of silver, or chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, and then the sixth kingdom, the stone. They're, in the dream, they're divided up into these sequences. It's only in the, the interpretation that we find out that the feet and the legs are of the same kingdom. But a literal approach, the sort of approach that you typically find in dispensationalist churches would require taking the feet as a separate kingdom. We have to allow the symbolism to drive the interpretation rather than trying to get a more literal approach in that way. Apocalyptic literature is not meant to be taken literally. Fourth, fourth principle for interpreting biblical prophecy This is the final one. Interpreting prophecy by use of the newspaper or a history book 
is an insufficient and usually faulty method of interpretation. There are times and places where it can be helpful to identify some of the things that God is doing. But in general, that's, that's really not the point of the prophecy. Remember we said last week, this prophecy could be understood sufficiently at the time that Daniel gave its interpretation. Not because someone was able to look into the future and identify who the other kingdoms were, but instead because they had the word of God. They had Genesis 1 and 2, and they had Psalm 1 and 2. And by comparing these things with other scriptures, we come to the understanding of the symbolism. Or here's another way to say it. God gives the interpretation, not any newspaper writer or historian. Daniel makes this very clear in his words to the king. He says that he cannot tell the king his dream or the interpretation of it. Only God can do that. And so we must listen to God who gives the interpretation and not seek to find the interpretation in any history book or any newspaper. That's simply not how prophecy like this works. At best, It's an insufficient hermeneutic. Most often, it's a faulty hermeneutic. God gives the interpretation in his word. Well, as I've said a couple of times, I suspect this has been a more intellectually challenging sermon than usual, and I know that that's coming from someone whose sermons tend to be on the intellectual side to begin with. But I hope this has been helpful to you. I really think we've done some important things here. And what I hope I've done is is modeled for you the proper approach to understanding this and other prophecies like it. As we said at the beginning, it's so helpful that Daniel tells us the interpretation as well. Because that that helps us to check our our process with what he says. Is what I'm saying fitting with what he's saying? Because if what I'm saying is not fitting with what he's saying, then it means I've got a wrong approach to this whole thing. But again, even in all of this more intellectual stuff, let us not forget the practical side of it as well. All of this is telling us of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of our need to belong to his kingdom, that we must not put our hope our ultimate hope in any of the kingdoms of this world. Those who belong to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the great king who protects his people and provides for them. Those who oppose him will find he is terrible to face in war. And they will receive his judgment. But for now, Jesus still calls you to come into his kingdom by faith in him. Friends, do not miss this chance. It will not last forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, just as you have intended, your word has drawn our attention to Jesus Christ. 
He is the great king. Truly, there is none greater. Every other king has had his failures and his shortcomings, but not our king. And we thank you for him. May we grow in our love for him as we see more of his greatness and surpassing worth. We ask this in his name. Amen.